Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jennifer Wimbish to our show. Dr. Wimbish is the President Emeritus at Dallas College Cedar Valley in Lancaster, Texas. Hi, Jennifer. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. I'm excited to be here. So let's start off with first talking about uh, Dallas College Cedar Valley. Can you tell me why students select that institution? Well, first, it's a great institution with great teachers, great faculty, great facilitators of learning. The classes are small uh, and the uh, faculty and the people working together really care about the students. And so in that small environment, the sky is truly the limit. And Cedar Valley is known for some things. Uh, Phi Theta Kappa chapter first in the world uh, when I was there and they stay in the top 10. Uh, when I was there, we had two uh, early college high schools that were recognized nationally. The veterinarian program was the first in the world to teach online uh, classes. Um, and so I could go on and on. I used to at Cedar Valley say this, welcome to the home of the Phi Theta Kappa chapter that's first in the world, welcome. And I could go on and on, but people never think a small college uh, that serves a large minority population who could have students who are the best in the world. The music students go to their convention and come back world leaders. I made sure that those students were on stage with Waymond Tisdale and Kirk Whalen. That's what I believe is important. All 18 of those students that were on that stage now have world-class jobs. One is the manager for CC Wyman. So um, it's a great college with great teachers. And I mean that genuinely, teachers who know how to teach, teachers who care about students, who work across the college, instruction and student services, who uh, have rewards for students. And it's just a great place to learn. You know, so since this podcast is on so many podcast services, I've noticed that we actually have parents sometimes listen if they notice that their local college is, is being on the podcast. And so since you mentioned Phi Theta Kappa, can you, can you tell us what that is? I know what it is. I was actually part of that when I was at, at our college. I used to say that's, that's, the, that's the program for the smart kids. Uh, <laughs> but it's for students that have a large GPA. So you have to three, five or more. You have to get selected. Uh, and, but in order for them to be winners, they have to pick a service project. They have to write about it. They have to go to a national convention and compete and talk about it. They have to be the top of the line students. So it is an organization for students that have a certain average. Now here's the good deal for parents. Once students get into Phi Theta Kappa, especially into a community college, they've done well in college, they're gonna get a scholarship somewhere. They're gonna get a full ride, most often to a college of their choice. We had a, a student who got accepted into Columbia, pretty much a full ride. On the other hand, Oklahoma University or University of North Texas, a lot of students getting uh, full rides and scholarships to SMU. And so that's important for students 
to know how to get the money. And for parents, the community college is the best deal in town. It's not going to cost you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you can't afford college, uh, they're gonna be great financial aid uh, rewards. You hear President Biden talking about community colleges being free. Uh, you can get those two years and our students, when they transfer to a college normally, do better than the students who started at that college. So yeah. it's a great education. What was the percentage of students, do you remember, that was Pell eligible at your facility? Do you remember? You know what? I want to say that some uh, a little more than half were Pell eligible. Wow. That's yeah. impressive. So a large number are Pell eligible. And now the thinking is that uh, you heard President Biden say college, yeah, good education is more than 12 years. Uh, he would like to see everybody go to a community college free. And the Dallas system does have uh, a program where uh, that can happen if you keep your grades up. And many of the jobs where you make 100,000 or more, you can get in a community college. For example, uh, to get a degree uh, in auto automotive, auto mechanics. And if you get to what we call level five, you can get a job for Toyota almost anywhere in the United States, making 100,000 or more. And so often people don't know that. No, I, I, I agree with you. When I used to talk to parents is, is uh, uh, education is education. And, and for some, first of all, it's, it's their passion. Uh, they may not want to be an accountant, but they would like to be an auto mechanic. I mean, it's the same. So that's they they should follow their heart because the money will be there if if, yeah. if they go to a community college. I agree with you on that. Um, let's talk about the path that you took to become the president out at uh, Cedar Valley. Well, you know, I'm a pretty traditional kind of pathway person. I taught uh, seven years at uh, junior high and then in an alternative center for students who were in the hospital. So that was high school. I got a degree in counseling. I became a counselor. And then my husband, I got married. We went into the military and I got a job at Shepherd Air Force Base. Take this, as a counselor who was an administrator. So with 15 great faculty uh, transcribing uh, credit for the military, and then working with uh, them to make sure students were successful. We moved to California. Uh, then I got a job uh, at Brookhaven College over the Women's Resource Center, administrator, uh, but not making the big bucks. Then I got a job at uh, Brookhaven College as a counselor, okay, a faculty counselor, taught teaching things like um, how do you select a career, faculty counselor. So I knew the faculty very well. The faculty liked me. Then I became a director of counseling. Then I became a dean and I had special services reporting uh, to me and grant services. Just think about you are over counseling and special populations and the people writing the grants report to you. Then I became a dean in Lansing Community College in Michigan, who was equivalent to a vice president of student services doing a RE-R. Now here's where it gets even better. I had all of student services. I had developmental reading, writing, math, developmental science, online instruction, all of that library and media. So I had a budget equivalent to many colleges and they needed someone to be provost. 
And the provost at Lansing at that time is like, you're running the campus. You're almost the president. So I go and say, I'll do that, but I want to be a president at some point. So I'll do this job on an interim. The president has to leave. The board asked me to be president. And I said, no, because that's an ethical issue for me. I took the provost job planning. They said, we want somebody who doesn't want to be the president. There would have been other people who would have applied for the provost had I not been the candidate. So I said, no, but will you let me stay here until my son gets out of high school? So I was in Lansing. My husband's an attorney. He's in Dallas. My son's with me in Lansing. He's flying into Lansing once a week. Uh, we have a very healthy son. Uh, and then I become president of Cedar Valley College. Now here's the deal there. People ask me why I go from a college of 18,000 to one of 2,500 that in 13 years, I built uh, the enrollment to grow to be right at 7,500 and we won every award. And there's a simple answer for me. And I understand separation of church and state, but someone who controls the world spoke to me and said, this is why, this is where I want you. And so it worked beautifully for me. And let's look at this. My husband was in Dallas. I was in Michigan. I wasn't thinking to come back to Dallas. He said, go anywhere in the world you want to go. Somebody speaks and I come to Dallas and now he has his business in Dallas. Our son goes to the University of Southern California and I end up almost back where I started. Now you tell me that isn't somebody with the higher. Yep. No, uh, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I agree. That's, that's kind of exciting. Um, you know, I had a couple other questions I was going to talk to you because of the history of you. Uh, uh, I think you were what, about probably 12 or 13 years as a president. Yes. But I think uh, the best way to, to get information from you is let's talk about your book. Um, sure. so, so the title of your book uh, is Leadership Wisdom for All Generations. Um, I'm kind of excited to see it. Uh, I do have some questions about it. And the first question I have is, why did you write it? Well, you know what? Um, here again, it, it was a, a, a calling on my life, but I was doing a lot of speaking. And every time somebody would just ask me something, I knew the answer. And they would say, well, where did you learn that? And really, I am the product of phenomenal, great leaders who were, uh, I say in the subtitle, uh, they were ethical, they were unique, and they were authentic. And so I realized that I should write this down for others coming uh, behind me. So I never tell you who told me what, but I dedicate those books, the book, to those great leaders. And so I found out that there's nothing you can ask me, try me, that <laughs> I don't tell you about it when I'm telling the story of how I learned it changed. Uh, I learned about how do you create an agile organization in changing times uh, when I was in Michigan from Abel Sykes. Uh, and I tell you how you do it and what I learned from him. And so uh, it, it's called Changed in the book, but it's about how do you create an organization in today's time 
uh, where uh, you can change on a dime. When COVID came, as I talked to a number of people, there were so many things I knew they should have already had in place that they didn't. And I tell you about it in the book. So uh, I wanted other people to learn from what I learned. So it's, I hear people say it's an easy read. Uh, I had some great people uh, doing my line by line editing, but I dare you to ask me a question that I don't cover in the book. So, so you just set up a good question is because I, I know the listeners are going, well, then tell us, tell us about this change. <laughs> so, so how do you turn on a dime like that in changing times? Well, first, you have to have some philosophy and some theory of change. Uh, and so you have to know what you believe about it. But then you have to have a crisis intervention team. Many colleges, when COVID came, didn't have a crisis intervention team. So I always had a policeman, a counselor, a faculty, a support staff, uh, an administrator who could deal with any kind of thing that happened and they could come together quickly and to go back quickly. Uh, and so when, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the shooting occurred at El Centro in Dallas and my crisis intervention team, I was looking and they were looking and I said, guys at nine o'clock so that the college feels calm, we have to know what we were gonna do. They looked at it, they did, uh, 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 wasn't Zoom then a telephone conversation. I came in at work, at eight o'clock and they said, here's what we're gonna do for those students who are in stress, the count, they can go to the counseling center and do this. Those students who have families that are doing this, they can do this. We've talked to the faculty, we're gonna offer classes online and do this. We had the whole thing figured out by eight o'clock, then we could tell the campus at nine o'clock because if I'm 12 o'clock telling you, now you're nervous. So at nine o'clock, we had the message. Then you have to have a good communication system. I say that anything that's important, I have to have communicated it three different ways. Uh, and I have to know how the people wanna hear it. Because you know, if I communicate with a hundred people, how many people do you think are gonna respond to that one way, seven out of a hundred? That's just a marketing strategy. So I had a good communication strategy I knew how the people in the college wanted me to communicate about things. And I had a strategic plan and thinking that was way out, that was data driven. So I always knew who wasn't doing well, okay? I always knew, for example, we had 60,000 uh, people in the Cedar Valley area that didn't have any college education. I knew where they were. I knew what language they spoke. So it was always having the data, the information, being ahead, and then doing what you need to do, but always moving the college where they need to go. And the other thing that was so helpful for me is, you heard me say, I was faculty. Yeah. I loved faculty. I did a lot of presenting and panels with faculty. Right now, if I were a dean, you know what I'd be doing? I hear people talking about the learning gap. What do we know about when we went to online about the learning gap? Well, I'm not going to be talking to you about that. I'm going to grab probably the nursing faculty. Uh, you know why I would say nursing? Because usually they're up on top of the data and the information, the arts faculty, a math faculty, somebody from student services 
And we're going to talk about that together, just like you and I are. And so that allowed me to be close to people. The other thing that I always did every Friday, I call that my thinking day. I walked to the campus. And so on Friday morning, uh, anybody could have access to me. And I always had on my count time on my calendar, anybody could come in and I would say to people, it is my job to find the money for you to do the great things. So faculty would come in, give, let me give you an example. A faculty in the science department said, Dr. Wimbish, uh, I think we can win the national award for sustainability. And I need $300,000 to take an area in the back of the college and make it a science lab for students to learn about, uh, uh, not pests, but uh, what do you call it? Things that are in the water. And I wanna bring junior high school kids and high school kids to learn. And oh, by the way, you know, we're a little behind in science because some high schools are studying about this chip that you're gonna swallow. And then it's gonna tell you whether or not you're sick. I told them, uh, I got you 300,000. So knowing the people, using data to stay ahead, challenging people to stay ahead and write it into your strategic plan, having a uh, intervention group and knowing what people want to do great work. Deans have to know, if I said to faculty anywhere, well, in order for us to be the best, what does that mean? People are shocked when I say this. Um, so how will we know when we're the best? You'd be surprised what faculty told me. And then when I say, and so in order for you to think in that realm, what do you need to feel rewarded? What do you think they're going to say? Most they don't the time say it's, what it's been. Yeah, it's Go not ahead. money. Usually it's not money. I agree. It's not money. Uh, some of them said this whole thinking day concept at Cedar Valley came about because somebody said, I'd like to be able to have this day where I could go learn another a part of the campus. I'd like to be able to come into you. Somebody said, I want somebody to recognize me on my birthday. I can do that. So, but I give some of those principles. Do you have a philosophy of change? Who are you following? Is it Meg Wheatley? Are you, are you connected to systems thinking? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then do you have a crisis team that can turn on a dime that's got your gifted people are you communicating ongoing about that? Are you having a book where you're reading about the latest things going? Is it reflected in your strategic plan? And then who's in charge of executing? Who's in charge of executing? So I believe David in, um, now I'm calling it multi-generational learning teams. So, uh, and that's another great, Dean's gotta know this. I believe in making decisions with teams who are ethnically diverse, race, racially diverse, culturally diverse, uh, young and, and older individuals. But here's the key to teams. You got to charge the teams. You have to have a charter for them that says, here are the things that in your work you have to do. You have to be research driven. You have to know what the best of the best are doing. That's in the charter. Here, here are your goals. 
Here is your power of authority. You can't make any decisions without bringing it to me. And the goal is for 95% of the time, you to be lined up with what I'm thinking because my chair and my co-chair is going to keep me involved. And if they're getting out there real crazy, I'm going to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who, who, who said that? Let's talk a little bit about that. That's their job. 90% of the time when the team comes in, yeah, let's execute. You, you were a few years ahead, to say the least, of people using intervention teams because I, I think when COVID hit, that's when some of them in the last couple of years just started thinking like that. Um, and guess what? I tell you all about it in the book. Yeah. I lay it out. Um, Abel Sykes. Uh, in Lansing, Michigan, believed in uh, teams. Now, uh, then I went to Michigan State. You do know that's the best of all institutions. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, in the education department, uh, where uh, we studied a lot about leadership and the whole notion of teams and how do you charter teams. So when I got my PhD, I had the best of all worlds. I was learning what was going on in the field practicing it. And then I was snazzy enough to just say to my faculty uh, that were teaching and they allowed it to happen. I don't know if that theory is true because I was playing it out. So I believe in reading, you know, right now uh, I'm reading about uh, multi-generational learning, but I'll, I tell you about it in the book and how to, I give you the form to charter a team well. Okay. So I tell you about it. Uh, now I've been working with the Texas Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber, uh, he uh, has brought together teams. Can you imagine this in 46 or 50 states? And he's leading nonpartisan with people who have, who have faced evictions, who have been put now, that's a story for another story. Some young people ought to come to that party and learn how he structured to get that to happen. But I really sort of already tell you about much of that in the book. So mm -hmm. teams is a, how, do you, how do you turn on a, on a dime? How do you get people to um, set goals and do strategic thinking? All of that. And then let me just say this, David. And then I tell you what to teach your kids when they're young. So they have great minds. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I well, before we go any further, so I, I I'm do have a few more questions about, about your book. If I asked you what some of the biggest takeaways from the book are, can you list some of those for our audience? Um, yeah. You know, I've given you some. Right. How, how do you organize for change and uh, using uh, teams. And uh, I think a big one uh, from an academic point of view is uh, in the book, uh, I share information about strategic thinking and planning. I think that's a big one. But then I talk about how do you handle conflict? Uh, and you know, that does exist in organizations. And how do you do develop reward systems that uh, allow people to move with uh, what you're doing. And then the whole notion of communication. Uh, at 22, uh, suppose someone said this to you at 22, a great pastor, Reverend Branch and Corpus Christi said, the greatest challenge of any leader is to communicate the vision so people hear, see, feel, touch, and move with it. So how do you do that? 
At 22, he told me that. And then we proceeded in Corpus Christi, Texas to establish an organization that 45 years later still exists. And he played with me and he would challenge me and say, so Jennifer, you wanna teach uh, black history and you wanna bring uh, Abernathy here in 79 to talk about the bicentennial. How do you develop the relationships to do it? And how do you communicate what your vision is about that so people hear, feel, touch, and move with it? That's a big one. You gotta be communicating uh, a number of different ways so that people feel your heart. And then I talk to them, to administrators about, and how do you win the heart of the people? How do you do that? You know, you, you mentioned conflict. And so one of the hardest things I think higher ed has to deal with is shared governance, you know? And so how do you, I guess my question would be, how do you handle conflict in a shared governance environment? Well, first you've got to make it comfortable for everybody to talk. So one of the things I learned at Lansing was we had, uh, I would call it almost cross-discipline teams. You'd have teams that had support staff, faculty, administrators, and those kinds of things. And what I would add today, that's why I'm thinking I need to write a chapter on what I've learned in retirement. I've been studying compression planning. And so compression planning is a method that allows you to discuss difficult things. And guess what? It's nothing we don't already know. So it works in the classroom. It works when you bring uh, con people of conflicting ideas together. So you got these people together. They all have a different opinion. And you start off and, and you say, here are the rules for how we're going to communicate. No judgment. I'm just mm -hmm. giving you a few of them. We have respect for everybody. We're not going to put anybody down. Now, that's stuff you know. Uh, we're not going to judge. Uh, and uh, we're going to value everyone. Only one person talks at a time. And I want you on a scale of one to 10. This is one I made up uh, that a faculty gave me. On a scale of one to 10, I want you to be always engaged at a five. If you are a 10, you're talking too much. If you're a one, you're not talking enough, but your assignment on everything is to be in the five or six go. Okay, so now I've set up the standard and now we're talking through. So now we're talking about a tough subject equity. And I'm finding a lot of people don't even know what equity means. But let's say we're talking about racial equity and you got some African-American males in the conversation who've seen African-American males get killed. So how are you going to talk about that? Same way. Now you got to have enough sense to know uh, when the topic is one that you can't cover without getting people hurt emotionally. And so you do have to know uh, at one time at Cedar Valley, we had a lot of African-American males hurt when Trayvon Martin was killed and faculty wanted to just, they wanted them to just talk about it in the classroom. I said, no, let's bring in an expert. I brought in uh, uh, Larry, who was a, a former superintendent, who was a black man, who uh, was a Harvard graduate. We brought the classes together. We brought the teachers together. And he said, I want to start off talking about this topic making sure you understand the difference between fact and fiction, fact and opinion. Wow. Now who would have thought to start that way? But then we had a counselor in the room to facilitate that 
discussion. So you do have to have some common sense. But this principle works for managing conflict. And so over time, if all your teams have some way to facilitate and you hold them accountable and at the end of each meeting you say, we're going to do a plus delta. Dean's got to know this. What did we do well today connected to these, uh, this principle that we've endorsed at the college? And what did we not do so well? And help me think how we can improve on that. Now, that means the leader has to have thick skin. You don't think that sometimes I went in as president and I facilitated something and they said, like, remember, you were talking too much. <laughs> so help me with that, guys. You know, help me with that, guys. And Dr. Wimbish, you, you really worked to make us do what it is you wanted us to do. So now, how can I do that differently? You got to be thick-skinned. I, I love the one through 10. I think that's, that's genius as far as getting people to interact, because that's the hardest part is when people are talking too much or too little, and you're trying to have this conversation among your committee members. What a great idea. Right. Yeah. And so I tell you all these things in the book, but you also have to create a climate where people are comfortable, comfortable. Uh, And with this whole notion of racial equity, I just did a session for a group of faculty. And so I said, is your curriculum, does it show diversity and inclusiveness? They said, no. I said, "Uh, do your book show that? They said, no. And I said, well, do you know how, if it doesn't, how to make that happen? They said, no. Now, how can that be in the time of YouTube? And right. so I said, I put on the screen, well, here's the young lady that just spoke at um, President Biden's, you know, the poet. And here mm. is Kamala Harris. Let's listen to what you said. And I said, and then let them research their heroes. So, you know, I don't have to tell you, hey, research somebody that's your hero. Uh, uh, and then let's come back and talk about it. And then let's do a little old chat thing where everybody puts something in there about their heroes. And then we all are going to learn Buddhist. Uh, we're going to learn about uh, people who are uh, Latino X now. I hope I have it right because it's still Hispanic and Ch- Chicano. But I got to be comfortable to say that. I was talking to a gentleman the other day and I said, help me understand that. You know how comfortable that made? And then I said to him, yo hablo espanol es un poco. Que estudio espanol en la escuela es uno, dos, tres, cuatro años. Now the man is talking to me. And now I'm saying, but that's about all I know. But the fact that I was willing to get in, that's about making students and people feeling comfortable. And I don't want to insult anybody to say I can make somebody feel comfortable with just saying that. But I have to care about about you. I have to try. And I used to walk around sometimes speaking Spanish and saying, help me. If I want to learn the language better, where could I go to get better? Oh, wow. I could do a whole thing on just that. You have to make people comfortable. You have to make sure that they see themselves in what's being done. You have to have great ways to facilitate difficult discussions. And you have to know when you need to bring in an expert because you're going to hurt people if you're completely out of your field. I tell you that. I tell you about that in the book. Well, so here's here's one more question for your book then. Um, does it, do you talk at all about uh, what uh, academic leaders can do to help emerging potential leaders uh, become leaders of their campuses down the road? In other words, mentorship. You know what? I don't know if I did as much with this, but I've given my life to this. So let me share um, uh, what I believe about that. Um, 
One, uh, at Cedar Valley College, I had a leadership academy that I taught. I taught. Uh, and it, you had to meet with me once a month, January through May, uh, for four hours. And you did a portfolio. And so everything we taught, uh, then you had to do. And you, you couldn't just become in the president's leadership cap, okay? Somebody had to say that you were doing great things. This is about feeding into where your college is going. And or you had to be involved in a leadership program somewhere and learning. So I think that's important. I think it's good for people to learn from the great people. Did you hear me say that all of my life, all of my life, I learned from the best. And then I think that you have to make programs accessible to deans, um, the, uh, the, the Leadership Academy designed for deans, uh, for African-American uh, leaders who wanna be president, the president's round table. Uh, they have to have access to that. Uh, you have to uh, have them uh, have uh, access to a ACE, okay? They have to go to uh, conferences and then you have to say to them, take a difficult subject and present on it at the conference and let's talk. And then you have to have people available to mentor them where they come to you with difficult things. And we do a roadmap. I've had so many people do a roadmap of where are you now? What's your goal? Do you know a lot of people, they will tell me, well, I wanna be both faculty and I wanna be an administrator. Wow, that, you can't do that. <laughs> You can, I mean, right. you can, but not at the same time. The network to become a faculty at a four-year university or a community college is different from the network to become a dean now. Come on now. Helping them to get clear and then charting the course and then helping them have a network of people where they can get the help they need to do that. And you got to have some people who mentor them. I do say this in the book. Uh, people that will tell them the truth. And let me say this, I learned this from uh, Diane Harden, a great, a great, great leader. Uh, and she said, when you're mentoring people, because I have a direct communication style, she said, Jennifer, don't just start telling them what the problem is. Say, oh, David, one of the things I love about you is you are so good at organizing things and making decisions. And boy, those are things that would take you well. But now let me just talk to you a little bit about, I saw you recently presenting with a group of faculty. And let me just tell you how you said that. And now let's think about a different way for you to say what you said and still get the message across. So you gotta have people. I've always had great people who would tell me the truth. And then they would look at me and say, you didn't do too well then. And so uh, there are mentoring programs. And I've also worked with some people who've had the money to invest in it. Cost you about $200 an hour, once a month. Uh, you can get somebody to do it for less than that to mentor you. And I said to some folks, guys, I'm gonna stop mentoring all you people. Uh, listen to me, you hear me say all you people, which you should never say. Uh, but uh, I've done so much of that free that I am thinking, wow, if they just pay me $40, uh, once a month. But I have some people who I've mentored who are now presidents, quite a few. Uh, and it wasn't just because of me. Let me be clear about that. But because the goal, and I say this in the book, is you got to surround yourself with great people. And then you say to them, I want to be like you. Do you know people don't get that? Most people will mentor you. If you can walk in their office 
and say, you know, I've been observing you and you're such a great leader. And someday I want to be like you. Would you be willing to give me some time uh, to, to talk about that? That's a great point because a lot of people just don't ask. They just don't ask right. and they don't know how to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know when, when I moved uh, out of faculty and became an associate dean, then a dean, there really wasn't a mentorship. I had, you know, you feel like you're kind of on your own, but talking to you, it's just like, gosh, why didn't I ask somebody to, to mentor me? So. And then here's the other thing I just said to a young man um, that I'm spending some time with, he's growing his business. And I said, one of the things when I was in Michigan, there were five of us who went to uh, ELI and we decided to meet monthly to talk about our goals and what we could do to reach our goals. Within a year, we had all reached our goals. Because you see, if I'm with five people, I said, well, one of the things Dr. Sykes told me I need to do is to get on a board and don't get on any more student services board, but look to be uh, on a board for a hospital or library or a bank. And somebody said, well, you know what? I can get you on a board. You know how, how much easier that was than me doing it? They said, hey, uh, I'm at, I wanna say Ingham, uh, one of the hospitals there in uh, Michigan, uh, they have some, some uh, openings coming up. I'm going to nominate you. So that's the other thing that I don't see people doing is figuring out how to work together to help one another. But first, you got to know what's missing uh, and keeping you from becoming that dean. Yeah. Well, earlier on, you talked about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what suggestions do you have to improve um, that on our college campuses today? In other words, DEI is talked about, but what if, if I was a dean or if I was a provost, if I was a college president, what can I do to start helping both staff and faculty in that position? Well, and students, well, first, of you have, first, you have to have a good definition. And this is what uh, many people think um, equity is different from inclusion and diversity. Inclusion means just bringing everybody to the table. Diversity, people of all faiths and religions. Equity means in your classroom, everybody has to get what they need to be successful. Okay? Everybody. Uh, uh, Christine McPhail de describes it this way. She said, if I had 28 people in my class and I all gave them a size 11 tennis shoe, is that equity? No, because they don't all wear a size 11. So first, you've got to understand that. Then you have to ask the question that Bradley Scott used to ask when he came to my campus. Who's here and who's not here? Okay, if you look at, you heard me talk about 60,000. Who is here and not doing well? Um, and so that requires you using the data. And so I often talk to people and they say, oh, well, we're gonna, we have an early college high school. We're gonna bring in some more black students. Why? Now that might get at racial equity, but without having data and information and doing focus groups. And uh, we did a survey at Cedar Valley once and we thought the students uh, were, we said, who's, who's not feeling comfortable in being here? You know what, what who, it wasn't the black students. It wasn't the Hispanic students, it was the Christian students. Wow. So now we gotta say, now the faculty didn't have the same perception of who was it. And so now we can dig deep and we can say, 
What do you need to be successful? And so you've got to know your data, your information, and then you've got to get to what I talked about a little bit earlier, where everybody feels comfortable, everybody sees themselves, everybody can say to you what they need to be successful, and everybody has a chance to be successful, and instruction and student services has to work together. Uh, for the good of students. Let me give you an example that I learned with the Poor People's Campaign. Old retired teacher, old retired administrator. And so we want to get young people out to vote. We found out they weren't uh, wanting to vote. And so we said, let's do a listening conference with students. So we brought all these students together. And we said to a political science instructor and a journalism instructor, um, or no, we said to some instructors at Rice University of Houston, uh, would you give uh, somebody credit for being a part of this? And so the first thing the political science instructor said, yeah, she sent us a video and the video was, was somebody was rapping. Do you know there are three parts of the government? There's the this branch and the next branch, you know, and it had all these people. And I was like, why is she sending that? Well, we found out. Then when we listened to the students relative to why they weren't voting, then the students made a video, got credit for it in their journalism class, could write about it in the political science class. And in the midst of that, one student was about to get evicted from his home. So now what am I gonna do? Oh, I'm the teacher. I don't know nothing about that. You just don't get him. How is that student gonna learn? So we knew about uh, churches that had uh, funding. Uh, the, uh, we got that uh, student to somebody in student services who, who, so student services had to have the resources, got them to that, that person. And so uh, you gotta have all those people working together. I would say, do deans even know what's, what's the big topic right now? relative to equity. If you don't know it, go find it out. And given that great topic, if I say uh, everybody has to have what they need, what does that mean and how do you do that? Let me just, I have to say this one thing. In some school districts in Dallas, we found out with online that not only did some of the people not have technology, but the students did. So we make the, the laptops available. Then we find out that there's not some hotspots where they can have access. And then uh, Chicago, I'm talking to people uh, in Chicago and they said, well, you know what we did? We mailed the computers to the students because some of their parents were working three, three different jobs to make end meets. So now I, I, I don't know if Dallas uh, got it, start doing something different because I didn't keep up with that, but I think they did, but you gotta know so now I'm sitting in your class and in this online class and I don't have a computer, I don't have Wi-Fi, how am I going to be successful? So how do I get to that the first week of class? But suppose something else is the issue. So would they be just as open? Now we've just gone through COVID. I wonder if pre-COVID, you know, when I went to Cedar Valley College, they had a lending library. And uh, that was one of the things that saddened my heart that we had to let it go. Uh, but we had 70 computers, you could check them out. So this was another president's great vision. We had uh, four or five copies of every textbook in the library. Now, you know, we figured out that we, we ought to, uh, what is it, outsourcing, getting books a different way. 
And the whole campus had every, you know, you had computer labs, you had all those kinds of things. Uh, the hours for the library, um, I think we did this in Lansing, were, was driven by when students needed it, how can we staff so that this and that. Now at Cedar Valley, I've heard somebody say that they have a group of people working from midnight to seven in the morning. Oh, wow, what a concept. Uh, and so, but how do you let, let the students bring that in? What are the problems? So what are the questions you asked the first week of classes to get to that? And how could uh, faculty across disciplines and deans figure out those questions and then use those questions to get to every student getting what they need out of the classroom? Oh my God, I could talk about that too forever. Well, well, here's a, here's a futuristic question. So what do you think are the most important questions to be asked regarding the future of higher education post-pandemic? Well, you know, post-pandemic, here's, here's what I think the question has to be. What, are we, what have we learned about learning? <laughs> what have we learned about learning? I still talk to faculty and they don't know. Uh, there's a book called, What Do the Best Teachers Do? And that was out a long time ago and they still don't know uh, that. So the big the the uh, I used to have a, a, a an instructor and say the mother of all questions is what do we know about learning and how do we integrate that into what we're doing and so I heard a group talking about this learning gap uh, and and guess what some people think that students who were taught online didn't learn I heard them say the data doesn't suggest that that's not true so when student learn when students learn what what are the conditions for that learning. And um, how do we make sure they learn in a number of situations? And how do we deal with the barriers that keep them from learning? And I think that's really the question of all times. When I've been retired four to five years and I did my dissertation in 2000 on, my dissertation is what student faculty interactions make a difference in online instruction. Do you know the things that I learned with the faculty then we still not doing? Come on. So I think that becomes the question. And then it becomes, and how do we allow the faculty and the administrators to work in ways where uh, they help students learn and uh, they have a life. Oh, that's another, don't let me talk about balance. In my book, I talk about balance and, and they have a life. I heard a person say that some companies uh, were now working so that Friday, people for sure didn't have to come into work. That was sort of a wellness day. And so people were off and they're getting to where we knew we should have been 50 years ago. We said what? That people should share offices, okay? Uh, and that people should be able to create uh, their schedule that connects to their life and we define it based on that. Now you got, you got online and all of that kind of stuff. And then we have to make the resources available to them. Yeah, COVID would make some people stress out. So what resources do we have for them? So I heard this long list of things that people in corporate America are doing. Now here's the other thing. We in higher ed have to learn with people from all businesses. Uh, my son uh, started out in corporate America. He wouldn't want me to say this and felt led to go into charter schools. And a lot of what he knew in corporate America about how you flow systems, he's in finance. Uh, you know, I, I asked, I asked some faculty uh, about 
um, the systems that uh, we get students to register or use a lab. Uh, so he learned how to flow system. He can look at almost any system and just you talking to him, he said, well, hey, this won't happen because the people that you got doing the system don't have a higher enough education to manage the system. Um, so all those things are important. Hmm. I think that that's the issue. Well, and one more thing, and then how are we going to make what we find out become reality and talk across disciplines and across deans and faculty and then have a, a strategic plan so we execute what it is we discovered. And we, and we have the data ongoing so that if what I thought was going to work doesn't work, I try something, but I'm in a very collegial scholarly conversation with my colleagues and we're learning together. Oh, wow. Well, well here's my last question. Uh, well, and it's going to be a twofer. Uh, so first of all, I, I'm interested in if you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders. And then the second one is, uh, please tell our listeners how to get a copy of your book. Sure. Uh, of course, I like my book, Leadership <laughs> Wisdom for All Generations. Um, and while it's out there on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, I really would like for people to write me uh, and then let me autograph you a book and get it to you. So it would be J.B. Wimbish, J-B-W-I-M-B-I-S-H, at yahoo.com. And I have a Facebook page. And so they can go and see it. And, and I say that out there. Uh, one of my great uh, leadership uh, books, I like all of John Maxwell's stuff. All of his stuff, I like. I like still Meg Wheatley. Uh, I like all of her system thinking stuff. Um, Christine McPhail and a woman named Kim uh, Beatty have written a book uh, about leadership. Um, Christine McPhail, and I'm trying to think of the name of the book, and George Boggs wrote a book about for community college leaders about uh, leadership. And I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. But just recently, Christine McPhail and uh, Kim Beattie have come out with a book. I think it's a book on uh, leadership. Uh, let me see who else. Uh, Maxwell is some uh, body that people don't necessarily think of because he's writing in a religious vein. But he goes through, for example, the Bible, and he tells you all of the leadership principles in the Bible. So all this stuff is good. Uh, let me think about who else. But those of the things I, I love, Meg Wheatley. Still, I like some of the old stuff because it makes me think. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do, Jennifer. Too is since Academic Dean has a webpage. At the end, we always direct our listeners to go to the webpage. Uh, when we put up your picture in your bio, we'll put some contact information there for you, so they can just go ahead and get a hold of you directly. Sure. And David, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, one of the things that I didn't say that I always want to say to people, I am a servant leader. So I should have gone to Greenleaf uh, because I know Greenleaf well. And I believe my purpose in life uh, is to do those things that help other people be successful and reach their goals while I'm making a difference in their lives. So yeah, I, I got a call on Greenleaf. Uh, in, in servant leadership uh, and, and that approach also. But thank you. I am honored uh, to be selected to be with you today. 
Well, I, I want to thank you too for being on our show and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Have a good one. You too. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.